Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? This anointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, what a treasure to be in the presence of your spirit with your people and to be able to have this time to devote our attention to your word. Father, we admit there's been many words coming our way over this last week. There's been a variety of books and websites and news commentation and podcasts of all sorts that we've been listening to and taking in. None of those words are like unto this one. This is your word. And it is true. And it is given to us from your loving heart. We would pray now that by the Spirit you would come and communicate these truths spiritually to us. For unless that Spirit comes and gives to us understanding, and illumines this word to us, we are at naught, those of us who read it. We will misunderstand It will not spiritually penetrate our hearts. But with you, all things are possible. With you, this word can change us forever. We would ask now that you would do just that. Come and meet with us in this word and glorify yourself in our midst. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't watch very many game shows. I don't uh, get the chance to. It's not that I wouldn't. It just tends to be other things that occupy my attention. My family, however, from time to time, will 
uh, watch, is it uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, right? It's the, the one with the suitcases, right? And, and the women who open up the suitcases. Yeah, you're just like the first service. You're no help whatsoever. Is that the right one? The one with the suit? No, I've got the wrong one. Deal or no deal. They like deal or no deal. What's the who wants to be a millionaire? That's one too, right? See, see, the first service wouldn't help me. You're helping me. Really appreciate that. Thank you. I'm going to share with the first service that you helped me and let them, let them know. Deal or no deal. They like that one too. That's the one. You see, I don't watch many. I should quit talking about game shows. I think that's the lesson I'm learning this morning. I do remember, however... Uh, when I was a kid, I would watch The Price is Right. You know, it's a classic. The Price is Right. And I thought it was, it was really fun. You know, I'd be in my, my grandmother's uh, living room, sitting on her couch, and we would watch it together. And, and she, uh, you know, she would get so excited when she would see someone's name called. You know, the people didn't know they were going to be on the game show, presumably. And, and they would come forward and they would be like, crazy excited, and it was just, oh, this will be very interesting to see how this, this goes, like this character that, that's just been called up to see what's going to happen. And then, you know, they would, they would be out in, you know, three minutes or something like that. But, but what was interesting about the show, and what, I, what, I, what, what qualifies you, it seems to me, to do well on the show, is that you have a sense of the value of things. Um, you know, it might be a barbecue grill that you've got to guess, is it, you know, over or under $500 or a you know, a trip to the Keys, you know, what's that going to cost? Or oh, that's a $5,000 item or whatever it is. And the person who could evaluate and estimate, rightly assess uh, what it would cost was the people who did really well when they got the price right. You know, there really is that going on right here in Mark chapter 14. Quibbling over what's the right price for the worth of Jesus. What's the right price? What is he worth? Now, we could ask that question from an objective standpoint, and by the end of our time together today, I trust and hope that we will, but as we look at it in the text, I think that you, you want to notice that the price being right about Jesus, his worth and his cost, is, is personally and subjectively determined by the different characters here in Mark chapter 14. Uh, some believe Jesus is worth a tremendous amount based upon their actions in the text. Others are, well, they're, they're fighting mad about the kind of cost that so-and-so gave towards Jesus. It just really doesn't cost that much. They could have gone, you know, they could have been faithful and not given quite that much uh, to Jesus. And then one has so lost a sense of value for Jesus that he is willing to sell Jesus for a totally different value. What is Jesus worth? What is he worth to you? As we look at Mark chapter 14 together, I, I, wanna, I want you to have that question obviously in the back of your mind as we've had it in our mind throughout the whole of the service. But I, I want to start really by, by having you look at your life. Because I think that frames being able to look at, look at Jesus well. Look at your life. And I want you to ask the question now, what do I value by looking at my life? Now, we don't often think of life in those terms, do we? Like economically or, or evaluate all of life in economic terms. But, uh, but I'd like to suggest that you're, you're evaluating and assessing and judging the, the meaningfulness and the value of things. What really matters 
every moment of almost every day of your life in some way, shape, or form. Like some of you chose uh, today to come to church. It was a value to you. And some of you were like, yeah, I barely did that. And then others of you were like, we were anxious and excited and desirous to come. The value of being present at church um, and, or tuning in via live stream and, and worshiping the Lord today was in a variety of measures within our hearts dynamically this morning. Now that's going on all of the time. Like what do you decide to spend your time on? You know, you have all kinds of important things going on in your life, right? You know, moms in here, you may be asking the question, should I go, you know, I need to go to the store. If I don't go to the store, my family's not going to have anything to eat tonight for supper and, and, and I want to cook. And yet, oh, but, you know, Johnny wants me to play a game with him. And Johnny needs time as well. Do I not go to the store and we eat Cheerios for supper and, and I play a game with Johnny? Or, or do I go to the store and I tell Johnny that we're going to play that game later, and we're not going to play that game later, but we're going to try to, sometime later, days ahead, uh, we're going to try to get to that, that game. This is the stuff of life. We are constantly making decisions based on a variety of values. What's most important? What's most pertinent? What's most urgent for me to give my time to right now? We do this with regards to relationships. You know, are we going to spend time with him or, or her? Um, oh, I think she deserves more time. Her situation is hard. It's difficult. I believe it's more urgent than the other, so we're going to invest there. Or, or we're more selfish about the decision. Well, I, I like them better than I like them. And so I'm going to spend time with them rather than them. So that invitation gets turned down, and this invitation gets... That's evaluation. You're assessing a particular value when you make that decision. Every choice in some way, shape, or form is an indication of value. Now, with every choice that we make, there's a deliberation that we go through, isn't there? <laughs> there's a process that's happening inside of us. Most of the time, it happens uh, rather quickly, almost intuitively. It's it, you know the kind of decisions that we say are no-brainers, right? These are the kinds of decisions that we don't even have to think about it. It's so clear, this is what you ought to do. Bigger decisions like, say, taking a job in another city. We take our time. We slow down. We become very conscious about the decision. We make a list of pros and cons. We, we talk to advisors about what they think about us and our fittingness of this job. And then we look at the financial package. Uh, we consider whether we can be influential and make an impact in that position. We look at the city and we decide do we like it or not. And there's all these variables. And then we start going, oh, but i got to uproot my family. Oh, and my, you know, my kids are at unique ages. I don't know. Oh, and we love our neighborhood. You know, we begin to go through the costs. And we evaluate to try to come to a decision at some point as to what it is that we ought to do. Now, we do that... Very consciously with taking a job, but, but listen, you do that when you're at, you know, a restaurant. What are you going to eat, right? It's a deliberative process. For some of us, it's a very hard, very hard process. It's harder than choosing a job. We just, you know, you know and, and, and we have variables going on in our minds. We, don't, we sometimes consciously think about it this way, some of us more than others, where we, we say to ourselves, like, you, you know, there's the thing that we want to eat and there's the thing we should eat. Um, and, and they're both on the menu. And, and we say to ourselves, in, in a way of speaking, subconsciously, um, should I go for instant pleasure now, bacon, cheeseburger, and fries, 
Or do I go for the vegetarian salad, which gives very little pleasure in the moment, but it has significant dividends down the line? And we, make, we may make one decision at lunch, and we may make a different decision at dinner based upon the decision we made at lunch, just to keep things equal. These, you're laughing because these are the things that we do. What do we do? We're evaluating certain things. We're taking in and considering what's the important or right thing uh, to do in those uh, moments. Now, what's really interesting is we don't all make the same decision. We don't all make the same decision. You know why? Because we value different things. I remember wanting some, some Jordans. Th- those are shoes, for those of you who don't know in here. I don't know how keen Cornerstone folk are on shoes. Um, don't, just not aware. Jordans are really cool, okay? And when I was 16 years of age, I, I wanted some Jordans. My parents, there was no way they were going to pay for Jordans. It's a ridiculous amount of money to, for shoes, for shoes that you, Nate, are going to get dirty and grow out of. So my mom said, you know what you can do? You can pay for them, right? Now, Nate, it would be very unwise to spend your money on something like Jordans because you have no money. And <laughs> if you spent it on Jordans, you would have, it would, you'd really have no money at that point. And so don't, you know, don't buy the shoes. Well, you know what I did? I bought the shoes, right? I bought the shoes. Why? Because being cool is a major value, all right? I would do something different today that I did when I was 16 years of age. My values in a variety of ways have changed. Some would argue not enough. But nevertheless, the bottom line is this. The value of something, whatever that thing is, okay, is equal to the cost you're willing to pay for it. The value of that thing, no matter what it is, it is equal to the cost you're willing to pay for it. Hey, you know, the old adage with regards to the stuff we own, you know, the, the houses and the, and the cars. And, and uh, as I was asking a realtor the other day, I said, you know, is that house for sale? And he said, everything's for sale. You know, for a, for a price, everything is for, for sale. It's got a marker on it, that depending on how much it's, it's valued, right? It depends on what you're willing to, to pay for it. Now, as you look at your life and you consider the things you pay for, the things you spend your time on, the people that you spend time with and why, do, do this thought, why you spend time with them. What it is that you're looking to get out of the things that you do and the groups that you attach with and the organizations that you intersect with, as you do an evaluation of your life, let me ask you, what do you value? Now I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to look at Jesus in this text. And I want to ask you the question, what is he worth to you? What is he worth to you? Now that may seem like a very crude way of putting it. What is Jesus worth to us? But if we take seriously the language of the text, we have to reckon with the um, rhythm of economic terms that are given to us in uh, Mark's text. Uh, Notice the woman comes to Jesus with this uh, ointment, this um, 
this, this alabaster flask full of nard. And it is, we're told in the text, what? Very costly. Uh, when she comes, she pours it on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ as an expression of her love and commitment and, and devotion to Him. And when she does, the dinner guests around her are looking and going, why is she doing this? And they actually use another economic term. Why is she wasting this precious ointment? And then at the very end of the text, we're, we're told that Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, is willing uh, to sacrifice his relationship with Jesus, yes, even Jesus himself, in order to get from that sale of Jesus money. The whole of the text is asking questions of valuation. They even are concerned. They're even giving us the actual valuation of the nard. It's 300 denarii. That is, it's worth 300 days of wage earnings. If you do that math, you know, you don't work on the Sabbath day. That's 52 days. There's 352 days in a year. This is an annual salary. An annual salary is what this ointment was worth. And they are, you know, scrape jaws off the ground. We can't believe this woman poured it all over Jesus and it's gone. Now when we look at this woman and we see what is it that she is actually valuating here in the midst of the text, it's, it's quite clear that she's, well, she's, a, she's holding in high estimation the value, the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is likely that this ointment, this nard that she has, is, a, is, is probably either she's collected it over the course of a lifetime or it's been passed down almost like you know, grandfather's gold watch or grandmother's diamond necklace. It, it's this, this, this heirloom, this, this, this inheritance in the family that's used almost like a bit of a nest egg, a, a kind of comfort piece within the family. You know, the market might go down, we might lose, our, but we've got the nard. Okay, It worked like that. Right? It had that sort of value, a year's worth of value of wage earnings. Here this woman brings it to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's quite clear that she is not willing to uh, dab it on his forehead or uh, be conservative in the use of it. She breaks the alabaster flask, we're told, and she pours all of the contents upon Jesus. Now if you can hear uh, the... The rumble, as it was, of her heart's affections in this action is quite clear. This woman is willing to give up her most precious possession in terms of value because she has found Jesus to be utterly priceless. To give this to him was now nothing to her because she has found a treasure so much greater. She may have at one time found her security in that little nard, but now she finds it in the Lord Jesus Christ. She may have originally found her future investments in that little alabaster flask, but now she finds it in Jesus. She might have found her value in terms of her reputation uh, with others who are around her, but now she's willing to be scolded and look like the fool in front of them because now she has found her value in Jesus this woman now can hold loosely the things of the world because she is holding tight to the everlasting riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how she sees? You see how she assesses her values? 
The earthly treasure in light of this heavenly treasure is absolutely worth the investment for this woman. But as she's surrounded by these dinner guests, interesting, isn't it? They immediately get upset. They're, they're not, they don't just disagree. They're angry. The word is indignant in uh, the Greek. They're, well, they're fighting mad. Um, they're furious. Now, now, interestingly, the woman is unnamed in, in the text. The, the, the dinner guest, the some, as some were saying, as Mark mentioned in the text. If you look at John 12, which is the parallel text to Mark 14, it's, um, it's clear this is the disciples. Uh, these are people who've walked with Jesus and know lots about Jesus and um, understand the power of Jesus and yet are wrestling in this moment with what this woman has done as an appropriate response with the kind of value of the thing that she had that she's now spilled all over Jesus. They're, they're debating, deliberating, was this worth it? Like, like you would do with a, with a big decision. Is this, this is going to cost, is, is the cost analysis benefit working out here? That's part of the question that, that's rummaging around. And what we hear from the disciples is, no, it's not worth it. This is ridiculous. They were so angry, they couldn't keep quiet about it. They had to scold her, we're told. Their anger became vocal. You know, this is not a little nice dinner party here with Simon uh, the leper, um, where we're just you know, friendly making small talk. This is a moment where they're going, I can't stay quiet about this. This is absolutely ridiculous. This woman, I mean, she, like, there's no one we do now. I mean, Lenard is like everywhere, and, and, and we can't get, you broke the glass, can't get it back in. Or, I mean, it's, it's done, but this woman needs to be correct. I mean, someone needs to train this woman better to know when like a real investment is in her hands so she can make a better decision down the line and not squander her family's inheritance. That's sort of what's going on in the mind. Now, when you look at John 12, what's interesting is it's not just the disciples who say that. The plot thickens, you understand. It's Judas Iscariot that says that. Yeah, he shows up in our text. John's more blunt than Mark is. John in, in John 12, he says, um, here it appears that Judas is concerned about the poor, right? Hey, we could have taken this ointment and sold it and we could have fed people for a year. The poor in our community with the $40,000, $50,000 worth of this 300 days of denarii uh, to be able to care for those. And, and, and John just says, um, Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas cared about this because he kept the money bag with the disciples and he was known to skim more than a little off the top. Do you see, by the wasting of this nard on Jesus, this actually hit Judas in the pocketbook. The access that he would have had to the funds that would have been available to him in the cell of the nard will not be. Now, and isn't it interesting that the very next thing we're told about Judas is that he realizes by Jesus' response, Jesus is not upset about this. That the valuation of Jesus with regards to the action that the woman took is entirely different than his own. Which, if we continue to tease out Jesus' valuation of such acts, this means we're going to go poor pretty quick. Jesus is no longer the means by which I can get money. 
Therefore, I will use Jesus as the means by which I will receive money. And I will sell him into betrayal. We see what Judas values. We see in the disciples the sum, the very, we might call, sort of moderated and reasonable approach that the disciples took to, um, yeah, you know, you could have just shook a little bit out in your hand and like rubbed it on his temple and that would have been nice and, and enough. But instead, it's as if not giving him everything would not be enough for you. That's interesting, isn't it? That the valuations in this room at the table of Simon the leper are radically different. What is Jesus worth to you? What is he worth to you? You know, I think in Mark 14 we see two types of disciples, if I can put it that way. I think we see one that I want to call the counterfeit disciple. The counterfeit disciple is one who follows Jesus for the benefits that come their way by being with Jesus. This is the counterfeit disciple. They, they follow Jesus and are a part of Jesus' you know, posse, so to speak. They're in his group. They're close enough to him in order to glean the benefits that come from being associated with him. But they're actually not following Jesus. They're following Jesus for what he gets them. What they receive from him. The, the, the accoutrements. The, um, the benefits. The amenities. You know... Some of us feel this about the call of the Christian life. I mean, we get very nervous, right, on those, those messages about the cost of discipleship. And the pastor starts, you know, quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we just, we go, okay, these are the kind of sermons that really make me, you know, very nervous when we start talking about costs and things in terms of following Jesus. I just want to be a two-Sunday-a-month pew warmer and occasionally drop a few bills in the tithe box, be called a Christian, and generally so be accepted within the community. That sort of thing is sometimes needs drilling into. What kind of heart is this really? Is this a heart that says, I will follow Christ as long as I can do uh, generally simple benchmarks and still be on the inside? What's the least I could do to be called a member? You see, you see the frame of that heart's very different. This woman is asking an entirely different question. In fact, it doesn't even seem like questioning is so much a part of her deliberative process as much as she is captivated by the treasure and the beauty of who Jesus is. And the other dominoes of sacrifice start falling because she has fallen in love with Jesus. She has come into a treasure that is worth giving up everything. See, she's that second kind of disciple. She's what I want to call the committed disciple. The disciple who's all in on Jesus. The one who doesn't see the costly contents of Jesus or the costly contents of the nard as anything in response to the treasure of who Jesus is. You know, Jesus here, very interestingly, doesn't he? He, he responds. He tells the, the, the disciples and those who are gathered at, at Simon's house to leave her alone. 
like, don't, don't trouble her. Um, quit the scolding, okay? He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. I love that word. Do you know the difference between um, genuine Christianity and, and false Christianity? F- false Christianity is, is a Christianity that only sees Jesus as merely an instrument to get me something that I want. But we know true Christianity is beginning to come home to our hearts when Jesus is what we want. And we're willing to give anything to have him. He is the treasure of Christianity. Not something attached to it. Not some trapping around it. It is him. And Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. It's a word that's sometimes used in correspondence to worship. She has noticed my worthiness. She has come into recognition of my beauty. And so as I see her with abandon, which no moderated Christian would ever do, and spill these costly contents just as an act of devotion and worship to me, I can't help but look at her and say, this woman's got it. This is beautiful to me. You know, it's not unlike the the widow's mite from a few weeks ago, isn't it? This story. In some ways, it envelopes in the the gospel of Mark. Here is a woman who gave very little, but she gave all that she had. Here's a woman that gave a lot, but is giving her most treasured gift. And in both cases, Jesus says, this woman got it. See, you see, it's not the amount, you understand. Don't get tripped up on the amount. He's speaking about the heart of the giver in correspondence to what they gave. What's revealed in and through that gift? What is shown and seen in that gift? Whether it's two lepta that's less than a penny, or it's an expensive jar of nard that's spilled over the head of Jesus. In either case, they get the treasure. And you see the character of this woman's gift. You also see, isn't it interesting that well, the ministry she does. Notice the way Jesus puts it. He says, she's anointed my body beforehand with regards to the burial. Jesus has got his mind on his mission. He's about to give up the ultimate cost for us. He sees the cost that she gives up. It reminds her, even, it reminds him even of his mission. This woman almost ahead of time is showing us a glimpse of the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the pleasure, for the beauty that was his, he endured the cross. For the beauty that is Jesus, she spills that lovely nard on his head and gives the most precious thing that she owned to him. There's a ministry that's in this. Jesus is almost as if saying, she's sharing in the fulfillment of what will be the fullness of the gospel itself that's coming in just a matter of days. She's preparing my body beforehand. For the burial. Isn't it interesting? I thought of this this morning from the standpoint that, you know, prophecy is fulfilled today in your hearing, right? Uh, In reading Mark 14, because at the very end of this text, it says that this woman's memory will be remembered of her throughout the history as the gospel is proclaimed. And I, I just, I want you to take in the fact that we're doing that right now. That Mark 14 is fulfilled in your hearing today. 
This, the memory of this woman is instructing us. It's teaching us. And, and do you see the eternal treasure of what it is that Jesus is already forecasting that's coming forth from the sacrifice of this woman? As she lays aside earthly treasure because she beholds the heavenly treasure. For the rest of her life, the memory of her will be tied to the heavenly treasure. Gospel. And men and women, boys and girls over the centuries will hear of her story and will come to know Jesus through her witness. I don't know about you, but my financial advisor tells me that the best investments are those that last a really long time. We're 2,000 years and counting. She has laid up treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal. And through her life, her life has become a legacy for others to find that heavenly treasure. That we too might be able to hold our earthly treasure with an open hand. Saying, Lord, it is at your disposal that I give it. And if it is mine to be kept, I use it in service to the stewardship of your giving to me. Now that kind of heart comes when you begin to realize, well, what it is that Jesus is just about to do. You see, he's about to go give himself well for you. He's not just going to spill some contents of some really expensive perfume. He's going to spill his blood. What's going to break is not an alabaster flask. It's going to be his body. And he will do it out of love and affection for you. When you look at Jesus, how much is he worth to you? What's amazing is that when you look at Jesus, he's looking at you. And he tells you, you are worth this to me. You're worth this to me. For me to give the whole of my life for you. You are my prized possession. That's what he calls you. You are my treasure. And I would dare say that when we realize that that's what Jesus is saying about us when he is on the cross shedding his blood for us, I would be the person in this dinner party who argues that this is, a, this is way too much. This is not worth it. Just use a little bit. I mean, look at these people. Look at us. We're not that big of a deal. But Jesus pours it all out. And he says, you are my prized possession. You are the one who I have set my love upon and I will not be deterred. When we begin to understand the cost that Jesus paid to make us his own, we'll begin to realize how free it is to give up the cost of the things of this world in service to him. The bottom line still is the bottom line, isn't it? The thing that we value will be known by the degree to which we are willing to pay for it. Jesus has already answered that question in terms of you, O child of God. How will we return the answer? Father in heaven, I would ask you now to let the love of Christ and all of its beauty be made known to our souls. 
And as we sit in that beauty, that you would draw us out in loving commitment and sacrifice to the Savior who has called us to follow me. And we would find that it is our great joy to do so. Would indeed the example of this woman become increasingly true of us here in this room? For to the degree that she is like unto you, Christ, is the degree to which we want to be like her. And so come now and hear our need for you to stir our hearts afresh and to give us and to call us to the grace of obedience to find that your commands are our happy choice increasingly over the course of our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.